Our reading comes from Genesis chapter 1 this morning. As I said, we're beginning a new series in Genesis and uh, considering the foundations of who we are as a people. And if we know who we are as a people, then hopefully we have some idea of where we're going and who we're to be as a people. And so, if you're reading in your Bibles, then Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is where we're starting. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and, so, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two, the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. And we ask God's blessing upon the reading of His Word this morning. When I was a student uh, in Glasgow, I was studying theology, and one of the things that uh, I was privileged to be able to do in Glasgow because of where the college was, just a few hundred yards from Glasgow Cathedral, was go from time to time and spend time in Glasgow Cathedral. I have a a real love for uh, buildings like that, these huge kind of buildings that, that baffle me as to how on earth you would ever conceive of something so big and so complicated and never mind actually manufacture the thing and then have it stand for several centuries the way it has done and the way many of the great cathedrals have done both in this country and uh, across Europe. But one of the things that I've often liked to do is to spend a bit of time um, in the cathedral. It was the same. I visited York Minster with my family a good number of years ago, and stand and look at the, 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 the space, the grandeur of it all, the, the hugeness and, and complicated way that all of the, the stones have all been worked together, and then leave that bit, because for all that bit is impressive, the thing that I really wanted to see is underneath it all. How does all of this stay up? I have no ability to understand how you could create something so tall and so, so beautifully made and yet have it all hang together. And when you go down underneath Glasgow Cathedral, you can see the incredibly complicated um, masonry that's been all stitched together to make sure that the whole edifice stays standing. Without the bit underneath, the bit above simply falls apart for all that it might have been made beautiful. It's one of the reasons that York Minster is still standing after it was struck by lightning and most of its roof was burnt off, that it was incredibly solidly built, and so it stayed up. And so it is for our lives. You might think of your own life, and perhaps, although I suspect you would never admit it, you might think of your life as a kind of cathedral, that it is just this place of magnificence and beauty, that your life couldn't be any better than it is. Perhaps that's not how you feel about it, but, but maybe you do. Maybe everything's going well in life, and you're loving life at the moment. Things are going really, really well. None of that really matters, does it, when crisis comes, if there's nothing underneath holding it all up. Because when that bolt of lightning comes out of the blue, as it did to York Minster, after the bishop who'd just been inducted there said he didn't really believe in God, your whole life runs the risk of falling down. The thing about this, which is actually Westminster Abbey, which is another one of these amazing cathedrals, is the foundations are what keep the whole thing up. 
without the foundations, which are actually very, very simple. The beauty of the structure completely disintegrates as soon as difficulty, trial, tribulation, harsh weather, whatever it may happen to be, comes its way. The foundations have to be solid, otherwise everything else, for all that you might have gilded it and made it look beautiful, everything else will disintegrate. And so, as we begin our series in Genesis, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to start relatively early in my time in Ladywell looking at Genesis. It provides a foundation, a a framework upon which everything else in our lives can be built because it is in the beginning. It's the first book of our Bible. It's the first book of the Jewish Scriptures, and it's there for a reason. It tells you who you are and where you've come from. It tells you the way that your life ought to be shaped and why. And on that basis, everything else follows out of that. Genesis is one of these difficult books, though, because we've got hold of this book, and we've done all sorts of interesting things with it over the years, and we've uh, looked into it, and we've found things that it says, and we've found a whole lot of other things that it doesn't say, but we would like it to say, and we've sort of shoehorned them all in together, and Genesis has become one of these strange books that we dig through for interesting bits of information, but we don't actually take as a whole. And so what we're going to do in our series, I suspect to the dissatisfaction of some, is we're going to move at a relatively brisk pace through it. We're not going to spend ages on the week of creation. We're just dealing with it today, and we're going to move on from that, because the purpose of Genesis isn't for you to be given a blueprint for how to create the universe, even if that was a thing for you to be able to do. It's part of a story that tells you who you are. And if we slow down too much, then we lose sight of all of that and get embroiled in all of the details that interest us and lose sight of the flow of the story that God has written as part of a whole series of chapters and a whole series of books. So where do we begin as a people? Who are we? Where have we come from? Where are we going? Genesis says surprisingly little about the very beginnings of our species, of any species of the whole universe. It packs it really all into one chapter and just leaves it there. And the details are actually pretty thin on the ground. All we are told is everything you see, however complex or simple it might be, whatever it is, God made it. And God made it in such a way that it was perfect. Not completely perfect in the sense that it couldn't ever possibly be any different to what it is now, but perfect in that it was created to fulfill a specific role at a time, in a place, and it does that thing the way God wants it to be done. And He creates one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And at each pause, after the end of each day, God says, it's good. It's beautiful. It's just the way I want it to be. And He comes to the end and makes men and makes women and says it's very good. Because He's made something that speaks of who He is. That's always the case, isn't it? We make things that tell us something about who we are. If you're the kind of person who 
I have to confess that I'm often like, that actually just wants the job done and is prepared to do it quickly for the sake of having it done, not necessarily well for the sake of having it done completely, then it speaks as to who you are. You're the kind of person who rushes and who isn't fussed about the overall uh, beauty of the thing. You just want the thing done, but that's not God, is it? God creates, and it's totally perfect. It's what He wants. It's the order He wants it in. Everything interacts the way He wants it to. You never get any hint in Genesis 1 of any disharmony of any kind whatsoever. Everything fits together neatly. Although it sounds chaotic, trees sprouting and animals swarming all over the place, it is the chaos that hides the control of God behind it all. And we have to be careful that we don't read more into these verses than is actually there. God created and said it was good, and He made us and put us in a place in this world and said it is very good, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill this place and subdue it. Have control over all things because it glorifies God. And then He rested. And the importance for me in Genesis 1, and I would say at the outset that I do believe Genesis 1, in the way it's written, does describe how God actually did make the world. You may not. You may disagree and say, you know, modern science would say it came about in a different way. And I understand that as much as I disagree with you, and I think there are some fundamental reasons why you're wrong in that, if you take that view. And I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you about that later on. But When we read creation, I think it's important at the outset for you to know where I'm coming from. And I think that this is true, and I think this is the way that God made it. And we're going to explore a few reasons why it's important we understand at the very least why, if you don't think that the detail is the way worked out in this passage, that it is important that you believe in the biblical creation. And the first reason for that is that without God creating this world and ordering it, the world simply won't make any sense. And the world does make sense. If you were to read any of the uh, the works of the great scientists of this nation or of any nation in centuries gone by, the likes of um, Isaac Newton or, or the like, you would find that their conviction that this world can be understood and described in a, in a mathematical way comes from the simple fact that they believe God made the world and has ordered it in a certain way such that you can look at it and understand it. If the world has just fallen together by random chance, we should have no expectation on any level that we should understand it. Because there is nothing to understand. It's just a thing that's happened. And we are just things that have happened. But that's not the way that God does it. God orders things in such a way and then reveals to us that He has done so, so that we would look at creation and we would understand something about who He is. Because whatever you think about this world, whatever your views are on ecology and on the green movement and anything else, this world was made to glorify God. It was made to reveal His beauty his intelligence, his power, his skill, 
you, you get these videos on the internet that go down to the smallest scale that we have been able to conceive of um, in, within the realm of, of, sort of the, the physical world, within the bounds of, of maths and physics. And you can see how there is, even in the chaos of that minute world, there is order and there is control that scales up and scales up. And if you watch these videos, they scale up from the unimaginably tiny to the unimaginably massive scale of the whole universe and show how at every stage there is something that has been intricately made, amazingly woven together, and it all works. Everything fits together like a jigsaw puzzle, and everything in our universe functions because from the tiniest to the hugest, it all works. And it all works in harmony, one with the other. This isn't a chaotic world that has simply popped into existence through random chance, and God has stumbled across it and has tried to draw some order out of the chaos. We don't have the option of believing that, whatever we believe about creation. God has made it to be beautiful, to be ordered for Him to control it, and He does so. There are a few issues with taking um, Genesis in a, in a sort of a poetic way and saying, well, it's, it's just sort of some nice sentiments strung together. We don't really have to believe in a biblical creation. And the first is that Hebrew writing is pretty clear when poetry is being used, and this isn't it. We find, secondly, that Scripture makes reference to creation and treats it as fact. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He talks about Adam being the first man. He talks about our world being fashioned in the order of creation. Jesus, thirdly, clearly believes in the creation account when He affirms that Adam and Eve were created in the beginning, not at some random point on a massive time scale at some point in the past, millions of years after the world had began, or whatever it might be, that somehow God had used animals to sort of eventually evolve into something else. He could have done. Jesus is God. He was there. John tells us he was involved in the very act of creation, and yet he says the words he says, Adam and Eve were there in the beginning as our first parents. And if Genesis 1 isn't true, if biblical creation isn't true, you start running into all sorts of problems. God inspired Scripture, and this is what Scripture says, so we have a choice. Do we believe what God says or not? Jesus is God and affirms the creation account, and more than that, draws conclusions from the creation that will run into eternity future. Will we believe Him or not? It's important that we believe in biblical creation because it's upheld by Scripture itself, and if we don't trust in parts of the Bible which we feel we're not quite sure about, then why would we ever trust in the Bible when it tells us things that we think are really, really important for who we are salvation for everlasting life, and so on. So, having acknowledged that biblical creation, I think, is affirmed by Scripture, we can see the importance uh, of our believing in it from here. We're able to understand the world and our place in it. Secondly, we find that we believe that God created. God can do as He chooses. God made this world, and that reveals something about Him, not just in terms of His beauty. 
it reveals that God can do whatever He wants with us. In Hebrew thought, the idea was that if you make something, if you're a carpenter and you make a chair, it is your right and your right alone to decide what happens to that chair. You can keep it for yourself, you can sell it to somebody else, or you can smash it up with an axe and turn it into kindling if you choose to do so. It's yours. You made it. You alone have rights over it, and so it is with God. This is Job's confession, isn't it? This helps us understand something of our place in the world, but also our own suffering. When we hear this, Job, in all of the loss that he experienced over his life, questions God and questions God, and in the end, though God doesn't answer, why have you let all these miseries befall my life? Job realizes, I have no right. You own me. You created me. You created this whole world. You can do as you choose. It's not my job to question your right, but my job to understand how should I respond to what you do. And that is the key thing. God has a right because He created the world to judge it. And this is one of the great struggles we have as Christians looking into the non-Christian world is that we're accused of being judgmental, and that's not the case. What we are told in Scripture is that because God created this world, He holds it to a standard. He has the right to do so, doesn't He? I've made it. And I've made it to function in a certain way for a certain reason, and when it doesn't, I have the right to judge it and to either condemn it or to uplift it on the basis of whether it's fulfilling the function I created it to fulfill in the first place. This is why when we read in Revelation, we read that no one can stand before God. Everyone must bow the knee before God in the end. And that doesn't, John doesn't say all the Christian people bowed before God. All of the people, everyone from all human history is finally gathered before God for judgment on the last day, and every knee bows. Because God alone has the right to say whether something has been done well or whether something has been done badly. We believe that God created and therefore has that place. And the third implication is that this world and everything in it is in some way precious. God made it all for His glory. And especially as we think about our experience over this past week, this is perhaps the most significant thing for us to hear today. God is never wasteful with the things that He's made. God never spends the lives of His children needlessly. Nothing is ever wasted by God because it doesn't matter. It's only so-and-so. It's only that continent or those animals or that group of people. That never happens because all things have been made by God for His glory, for His purposes, and for His plans. And so there is nothing needless in the actions of God. And for all that it's hard, we must reckon on that fact. Not even our suffering is needless, empty, or pointless. And there are those in the church, not this church, but in the church generally, who would say that God can't have any part in suffering. It all catches God by surprise for this reason, because it seems so cruel and so unnecessary. But it isn't if God made this world and made it for a purpose. And we'll go on and see what that purpose is. We believe not just that God created, and God has a right over His creation to do as He please. But we believe that man is made in God's image by God. The pinnacle of God's creation was man and woman. 
It's not just that he made them, but he made them to be in some way like him. That is, look, I know there are some folks in here that are cat people. They just love cats, and I'm not going to knock them in any way for that, and I'm not going to say anything about dog owners and their love for dogs, but however amazing your cat or your dog might be, your cat or dog can never know God the way that you can. However much you may love horses, a horse will never glorify God the way that you can. Simply by dint of the fact that you've been made in the image of God for His glory. We are special in all of creation. It's one of those things that our society unbelievably is forgetting. You remember that incident, that young lad that fell into a gorilla enclosure in the zoo a couple of years ago, and the zookeepers, rightly to save the boy's life, shot and killed the gorilla before it could hurt him. And there was an uproar on the news that you would shoot an endangered species like that. Now, the implication of that thinking is what? The boy's life, well, there's plenty of other little boys in the world. There's not that many gorillas. It was uproar. And you think it was an animal. Compared to the life of the boy, it mattered not a jot. Why are we even having this debate? And yet for all the same people who would want to uphold the rights of animals to be preserved from injury, they're more than happy to allow and to advocate the death of men and women, of children before they're born, and so on. We've been made in man's image and therefore have been set apart from creation. We are not the same as the created world. And if we let go on a belief in the biblical account of creation, we have no real reason to believe that. This is part of who we are as people. This is why we stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. This is why we support those who are going through grief and difficulty and who need assistance. This is why we do all of that, because we are not the same as the plants and the animals and the dirt and the water out there. For all that those things are precious, we're different. We've been set apart. Secondly, and most amazingly of all, this helps us understand what our day-to-day lives have been, not just our existence as humans, not just the way that we ought to care for those around us, but what we actually ought to be doing with the next half an hour, year, decade of our lives, however long or short they may be. We are made for the purpose of worshiping God and glorifying Him. And what Scripture reveals in Genesis chapter 1 is this. This is good being here on a Sunday and and worshiping God through song and prayer. But we have six other days of the week where we're expected to go out and do what? Subdue the earth and live in it. Love one another. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the world with beauty and with joy and with all of the things that God created it to be. That is our function on a day-to-day basis. Whatever you do as a job, you do it for the glory of God, so you work hard. You sacrifice and you work faithfully and dutifully. You uphold those who have no interest in caring for you or showing concern for you, and you do so sacrificially. Why? Because you've been made to glorify God in everything you do. And what would God have me do in this place at this time with this person or whatever it may be? A belief in biblical creation tells us who we are and what we are and what we're to do. Human life is precious, 
and it is all about worship in every facet, in every detail. So what does all of this mean? What do we do with all of this? Firstly, this means that we can know God and we can trust Him. If the account of creation in Genesis isn't true, if it is just a sort of fictional story to help the people of Israel understand where they've come from, Moses wrote Genesis and he did so as the people of Israel had left Egypt and they were asking all sorts of questions. Where are we going? We're going to this promised land. Why aren't we there yet? Why is everything going wrong for us? Who even are we as a people? Shouldn't we just go back to Egypt? And so Moses writes down Genesis to tell the people exactly who they are, why they're here, where they're going, and what they're going to do when they get there. But if Genesis isn't true, if it is just a story, that might be helpful for them. It means nothing for us today. But I believe Genesis 1 is true. The biblical account of creation is true. It does describe reality, and so it does have something to say for who we are today in Ladywell in the 21st century. It says what we're to do and how we're to go about it. Consistency is key for me when we read Scripture, and Scripture is consistent over and over and over again, and it is founded upon this moment, this act of creation in the beginning, all for God's glory. It means that when we read the New Testament, we can have as much confidence that it's true as the old. I was sharing with somebody just the other week that there is, um, you may be aware of the the Russian chess master Gary Kasparov. Gary Kasparov, I don't know if he is still um, part of this little intellectual group, but this group believes quite firmly um, that the world wasn't, you know, it isn't billions of years old, that it has a very short history. They're not Christians or, or anything like that, but they also believe that the New Testament was written before the Old Testament because they cannot believe that the Old Testament would be written centuries before, and then Jesus would come and so perfectly fulfill the Old Testament in ways that he had no real control over where he was born, how he was born, the circumstances of his life, his trial, his death, his resurrection, and so on. It's a nonsense to these sort of intellectual elites that that the Old Testament could be written first and then the New. They would say the New Testament was written first, and then somebody went and filled in the Old Testament quickly and sort of shoehorned it in to fill in the backstory of where all of this has come from, because they see a consistency that carries right through that isn't explainable through ordinary means. And yet, if we don't believe in Genesis 1, we have no reason to believe in Matthew chapter 1, or in Revelation chapter 1, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, or anywhere else, because if this bit can just be fictionalized entirely, then why can't all of it be the same? we end up picking and choosing. Scripture stops fitting well together and just becomes a book, a work of fiction that's been stitched together by human authors over time, and we have no cause for trust in anything that it might say. But we do know God, and we know what God reveals about Himself in creation, and therefore we can trust Him when He says, I created you to be this way, so stop sinning because it's never going to fulfill your life or satisfy you. Trust in Christ for salvation and follow in His way for all that it runs opposite to the way of the world, because that alone will satisfy what I made you to be back in Genesis chapter 1. We have a framework for understanding who we are. 
how I cope with the goodness and the blessings, the hardships and the sufferings I encounter in this life. For the Christian, there isn't coming back to, woe is me, why are you being so mean to me? And there are times when every one of us has done that, and it is totally understandable that we have. We're like Job. We don't understand what's going on, how this can be. And yet, God owns me, and if God wants to give me a long life, that's His prerogative. And equal if He wants to take away my life, or my family, or my friends, or my church, or whatever it might be, that is also up to Him as well. We talk quite a lot, don't we, of so-and-so. It was in the news just the other day, the celebrity Caroline Flack died at the age of 40, and you get all sorts of people saying they died before their time. No, they didn't. Nobody dies before their time. God knows the first day of your life to the very last, and all of it is worked into His plan for His purposes, for His glory, and therefore there is nothing pointless or futile in your life or anyone else's life. God is not arbitrary or random. He can't be by dint of His all-knowing, all-powerful nature. Everything is within God's plan, and so my life, however nice or horrible it may be, is held by Him and controlled by Him, so I have no need to fear. He says He will never let me go. He says those who I draw to my Son and give to Him, He will raise up on the last day, and you can't stop that. He's working out His perfect plan through my life and through your life and I can trust Him that He will see it to completion. Because everything is within His hands. And it means when I pray to Him, I have confidence that He hears and He'll respond. Because if God didn't make this, if God is not in control, how can He answer prayer? How can I have any confidence in that you'll hear me and respond if He's not in control in the first place? Thirdly, it means that we can worship God properly with everything we do in our lives. The creation account tells me I'm made in God's image, and I know that all I am is bound up in His, uh, His call to worship. Everything that I do should worship Him as a pastor, as a son, as a parent, as an uncle, whatever function I may have in life, in every facet, I'm to glorify Him. I'm to make much of Him. I'm to speak of Him. I'm to call others to follow Him. I have to worship Him and help other people to worship Him and so on. And the problem of sin makes that difficult, doesn't it? It's what leads us away and has us focus only on me and what I want in this life. And yet, when I turn to Christ and trust in Him, He puts my feet back on that path and enables me to walk in that way. This speaks directly to our society that says God has made us for a purpose and to worship Him. We could spend all morning talking about the application of this to the LGBT community or um, to, to any community that focuses itself on walking in a way other than that which God has prescribed in His Word, that it is walking in the opposite direction of worship. We're not going to spend uh, time digging into that this morning. There'll be more time for that as we go through Genesis. But God has made us male and female to worship Him together. And so we ought to do so and have confidence that we'll find satisfaction when we do. And fourthly, it means that we ought to care for this world. And I mean world in every sense of the meaning, the ball of rock that we stand on, all the people in the created order and the animals and, and so on, but particularly also one another. We've been put in 
overall control and charge of the, the stewardship of this world. And so we ought to be the first people advocating care for it. I'm not getting you know, my membership forms for Extinction Rebellion out or anything like that and wanting to join uh, some extreme group. But at the end of the day, if God's made this and said it is good, then ought we not to care for what He has said is good? We have an obligation to do so because it belongs to our Father in heaven. It's the jewel of His creative power, and He's gifted it to us. We can forget the anti-science rhetoric you hear atheists leveling against Christians because they believe in Genesis chapter 1. Without Genesis 1, we have no positive view on this life. But with it, we have a positive message to proclaim not just to one another, but to our world that you matter. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a purpose and a function. Your life is not empty. Even if you lose your job or your family or your friends or whatever it might be, you have a purpose because God made you to fulfill a role in this life of worshiping Him at the very least. And you have a place. God put you here. And I don't know why He put you here. And you might not know why He put you here, but He did. And while you're here, you're called to worship and serve and glorify Him. We believe in a biblical creation, and because we do, we know who we are. Our foundation is laid, and we're able to move on and look to what we do over the course of our lives. So let's give thanks to God for His goodness in providing this for us, and ask that He would aid our understanding as we read through it in the coming months. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for the creation account. Lord, it can give us some difficulty, some bother as we read these words and try and figure out why they're there. Sometimes many Christians have felt that it would be easier if it wasn't there. It doesn't fit with modern science. It doesn't fit with the view of the world we want to have. And yet, Lord, this is what you have said. And we give you thanks this is what you have said because you tell us so much about yourself. You tell us about who we are, and you tell us about where our future lies with you. And so, Lord God, as we work through Genesis and as we read all through this book, we ask that You would give us understanding, that You would bless us with the knowledge of where we've come from so that we would know where we're going. And more than that, that we would know the hope that You have called us to as men and women in Christ. Lord God, we thank You for this morning. And we ask that You would bless our understanding of who we are and where we are right now in life as we read these words as we hear of your care and your love for us and the purpose and the direction that you have for each one of us in this life. And Lord God, we ask it all in our Savior's name. Amen.